session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on uh, next Monday's show is The Sweet Spot by Paul Bloom. The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. And so again, another book that judging its cover and its title, I really like looking for this balance that uh, when we talk about happiness or living a good life, often it involves suffering, which we can think of as, well, suffering doesn't sound good, but really to have a meaningful life, we usually do have to face and embrace challenges, and it's in a way picking the right challenges. So, of course, I don't know what Paul Bloom is going to discuss specifically, but just that theme of finding a meaningful life and that actually we should strive for meaning more than happiness. I really like. Uh, you might have remembered Paul Bloom has written several very good books. I also discussed his book a few years ago called Against Empathy, which was against my own feelings at first because it sounded like I wouldn't like it um, being against empathy, but that wasn't really his point, but showing how empathy and our natural responses, uh, empathic responses, can lead us astray at times. And so he wasn't saying we shouldn't care for one another, but I feel the like the subtitle was something like a case for rational kindness or something like that. And there was this theme of how we can think about the ways we uh, express our kindness and generosity. But again, that's his previous book. You can listen to that show to hear that one. But next week, Monday show, The Sweet Spot by Paul Bloom. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Nobody's Normal by Roy Richard Grinker, Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness. And I mentioned this previously, I was excited to read this book, had it on my desk for a few weeks, and thought this could be a good week to to, to read it, and uh, really enjoyed it. Essentially, in this book, um, Dr. Grinker, who is a professor of anthropology, he goes through the history of mental illness as far as how they came about, how the field of psychology, psychiatry came about, how different illnesses in a way came about to be classified as being an illness, what that even means. And then also there are cross-cultural types of themes that come up as well as a reminder that what one culture and also one culture at a certain period of time considers an illness might not be the same as some other culture or country or time period, and that we have to look at the social, political, economic, historical factors that go into understanding human behavior, human reactions, and then how we then also justify or classify certain uh, reactions as healthy, unhealthy illnesses, uh, and the like. So uh, I thought it was a fascinating book, and, and actually nobody's normal 
could be in some ways um, another title for my show because that's something I really feel very strongly about, that there are so many ways that we judge one another, of course judge ourselves too, but judge one another in, in ways that don't make sense, in ways that try to make it seem like we're, we know what's right and we're doing it right and there's some good people and then there's some bad people. There are some sane people and some crazy people. Uh, but really that's a figment of our imagination, another hallucination or controlled hallucination to borrow the term I saw in Anil Seth's book a few weeks ago, uh, a way of just fooling ourselves into thinking we know what's right and that we are right. But really nobody's normal. So I, I'll talk about the book and the things it brings up, but we all have issues. Uh, I had it as a quote on my Twitter and social media a few months ago, I think now, but basically that people who don't think they have mental health issues are a mental health issue for other people, or people who don't think they have a mental health problem or a mental health problem for, for other people. So we all have stuff, things that we do that really might not quite make sense, ways that we interact with people that aren't the healthiest for us and them, and we're all trying to figure out how to survive and get through this life. And what I think is unfortunate is that we stigmatize, when we talk about stigmatizing mental illness, essentially what we're saying is we're stigmatizing parts of being human, what it just means to be alive as a human being and go through life. And oftentimes we are stigmatizing those things and it's really, really sad that we do that. And so one of the ways we can try to challenge that, it's very complex, and in this book he he gets into that as well, because just saying, he, he does talk about how even me, I can just say, oh, stigma's bad, let's reduce stigma, and I do say that. But what that actually means and looks like is much more complicated and complex than just saying, let's reduce stigma, uh, because it, it's not that easy. Just saying that doesn't necessarily take it away. Of course, talking about things does do something, that is the first step, by making something no longer taboo, we do reduce the stigma that can be attached to it just by doing that alone. So anytime we keep something as a secret or make it feel that you have to keep something a secret, it makes it less likely that people can feel comfortable sharing what they're going through. But so I'll get into some things about mental illnesses and how they're not these Sometimes we think, well, if there's this disorder called PTSD, and actually George Bonanno, who I had on the show, talked about his book a few weeks ago and then had him uh, as an interview, I think, two weeks ago now. Um, and actually, I was very lucky. I was in on the East Coast this past weekend, and he very kindly invited me um, to, to meet, and we went to his office, so I got to see him, very kind uh, man, and it was very nice to get to see him in person. Um, but... You know, when we uh, talk about something like PTSD, it's not this thing that came out of the sky and is totally real and only can be seen in one way. And when we hear these disorders have a title like that, it can make it seem so real. Now, this doesn't mean people are not really suffering. They definitely are. And there's something there. So it's not that PTSD is only made up and there's nothing real about it. But the way that it gets to be defined to have certain symptoms and certain checklists of symptoms, as is often the case in the DSM, 
the book that clinicians use to make a diagnosis um, or to make diagnoses, it could seem like it's something that is written in the stars, that there's this thing. And if you have five out of nine of these symptoms, that is depression. But there's so much gray area, so much of what goes into creating even these manuals for making diagnoses. It's not just a purely scientific exercise. It's often a lot of negotiating and debating and some give and take for the people who are creating these documents to come to some kind of agreement. So it's good for us to have at times the labels and the diagnoses, to have language, to make it so that we can treat things. Sometimes if we have that kind of language, when we have things like insurance companies, they need to know what is the diagnosis and you have to have one in order to get reimbursed or to get your treatment taken care of. So they have certain functions in different ways, but we also have to be aware of what they are not, which is they are not something that is um, like eye color where you have green eye color and blue eye color and we can see it clearly and it's very distinct psychological issues disorders are definitely not that way um, and that's why we can say we all have some stuff everyone has anxiety it's not a, it's a human experience some people might have what we consider an anxiety disorder where their anxiety is so much that they feel it's strongly interfering with their life and leading to distress but to say I have anxiety, which is usually when people say how they say it, it's not really um, expressing the truth, which is that we all have it. You might just have more of it. So uh, that's another way of destigmatizing it or normalizing it is realizing we all have uh, some stuff. But even if we look at just the diagnosable types of mental illnesses, uh, he has in the book that in a given year, nearly 20% of American adults, so more than 60 million people, meet the criteria for a mental illness. So in that's just in a given year, not a lifetime. 20% of American adults, more than 60 million people, meet the criteria for a mental illness. So that's 20%, meaning that in a given year, you or definitely someone you know will meet the criteria for a mental illness. So this idea that it's a them that have mental illness and then there's the us that's healthy or even that the you uh, is a fable and a fiction that we tell ourselves to feel comfortable. And I think, unfortunately, that is part of the stigma that there are some people that have it and others that don't. And then those that have it are really messed up or crazy um, when that isn't at all the case. So that that statistic, I think, is pretty staggering. What, you know, 20% meeting the criteria because also means that there's some people that might not, let's say, fully qualify in the diagnosing, um, uh, let's say, the way that we can diagnose something like depression. They might not meet the condition fully, but they might have depressive symptoms or might be experiencing considerable um, effect in their life from the depression they're going through, but they might not meet the diagnosis. So when we see that, we realize it's part of being human. And I think this is the part that sometimes, even before I'd use this analogy of when we look at the stigma of mental illness, sometimes the stigma can cause more pain than the mental illness itself. And actually, uh, on one of the last pages of the book, he has a quote from Nietzsche that is has a similar theme to it. So this is from uh, Frederick Nietzsche. To calm the imagination of the invalid so that at least he should not have to suffer 
more from thinking about his illness than from the illness itself. That, I think, would be something. So he was hoping that we could um, reach to a point where we would reduce or eliminate this stigma that's attached to maybe, I don't know if invalid means physical or mental or physical and mental, whatever it might be, but to imagine that we could get rid of that. So the person could just suffer from what they're going through, but not suffer from the stigma. And I would imagine this when I would try to make these comparisons or differences between medical and mental or physical and mental uh, illnesses, that the ways that we make a huge distinction still, that if it's a physical thing, someone has cancer, that's very sad and heartbreaking and they get nothing but support. Someone diagnosed with schizophrenia, you're going to get a very different reaction. Um, But I would sometimes make the analogy or imagine this uh, experience of if you broke your arm, but because it was somehow looked at as being weak boned or something is weak about you to break a bone, you would pretend like you didn't. So you have this broken arm. It's very, very painful. So a few things is going to happen if you have this stigma that it's really bad to break a bone. One is you're obviously not going to go seek treatment or you have to get it in secret or try to self-medicate or treat it yourself because that itself would be acknowledging it and people could see it. And even seeing the doctors themselves, you might be ashamed to admit this huge problem, this the stigmatizing problem to them so you don't get help, which means it's probably going to get worse. But also you have to pretend like it's okay. So you see people and you see a friend and they want to come give you a hug. And so you're like, oh gosh, when they hug me, my arm hurts. You have to pretend like it doesn't hurt. And so it might make it worse. You might go through so much pain. People ask you to do something and now you have to pretend like, you know, you never... uh, you know, your arm is okay, so you either make excuses or you do it anyway. And we could see that the stigma that is attached to what the person is going through might actually cause more pain and distress than the actual thing itself, the broken arm. And so with mental illness, we see that same thing, where oftentimes people are suffering, but the stigma can make it feel so much worse. And I work with clients and you see it happen. They're depressed and then they feel ashamed about being depressed or they're beating themselves up about being depressed or telling themselves they're so weak that they feel anxious and they shouldn't feel that way and they're crazy for feeling this way. And so the stigma is causing so much hurt. So if we can realize that we're all suffering in different ways, that that's part of being human, that if you think you don't have any mental health issues or you're not in any way having any mental pains or everything you're dealing with is perfectly quote unquote normal, um, you're just lying to yourself. And it's interesting, he explores this term normal as well, which really came about through statistics when we look at what's normal as in close to the average. Um, Before that, it wasn't really used. And then with the advent of modern statistics, it became a word that was being used. But of course, now by normal, we don't just mean close to the average or something that you see a lot. It It means good or bad. There's normal than abnormal, which means really, really bad. Uh, But there's these um, different expressions of looking for normal that he shared that were interesting. One was uh, they took the measurements of, I forgot the number of people of men and women, of course, all white, as it was done a while ago, and came up with the these anatomical kind of like kind of like sculpture of what the quote unquote normal man and woman looked like. And I think it was norm 
and Nor- Norma and Norm or, or Norman, something like that, or Normana. But um, basically they were normal and they didn't look really that normal to begin with. But it was this concept like, what does that mean? Because probably no one actually looked like these two people, these two standards of what normal is, uh, which, which shows us how it doesn't really make sense. Um, or there was another study that was done trying to find the most normal people psychologically done on a group of all men. And they found that these quote unquote, most normal men were actually also quite boring. And actually, um, in a, they wouldn't actually contribute much to things like classes because they wouldn't want to go outside of the norms. They wouldn't want to uh, think differently in a way, and they were quite boring. So it's this interesting indication. We think normal is good, and we're striving for being normal, but actually it's not what society needs. In some ways, we yeah, we need some kind of order, so we like things to be a certain way. If you're teaching a class, you'd like all the kids to behave in a quote-unquote normal way that you're expecting, but really, is that what is beneficial to society? Not really. Um, so we're at a commercial break, but I do want to continue on some of these themes that came up in the book that I find, found quite fascinating, and I highly recommend this book to give you an understanding of you know, looking at mental illness, what it is and isn't, and the history of how we've come to the current state of affairs. So uh, this is the book Nobody's Normal by Roy Richard Grinker. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book Nobody's Normal by Roy Richard Grinker. And, uh, you know, as I was saying before in the first segment, the ways we define mental illness has changed, evolved over time, which is important to recognize in a historical context because we can be blind or we are blind to a degree to the biases of our current time or our own biases, which are going to be shaped by our family experience, personal experience, our culture, the historical time period that we are in. And so sometimes when we look back and we say, wow, they pathologized that? How how crazy? How could they think that was abnormal or ill or something sick when we really don't think it's a big deal? You have to be aware that we are definitely doing that now too. A real clear example of this in just recent decades is that homosexuality up until a few decades ago was a diagnosable mental condition, mental illness that could be... um, diagnosed by a a psychiatrist, diagnosed by a psychologist. And so now that's no longer the case, but it wasn't that long ago. There are still living clinicians who probably diagnosed someone with that disorder or considered it a disorder. So we can see that sickness, illness, normality, healthy, unhealthy are not these purely um, objective values and objective characteristics of human beings that we have to be vigilant of the effects of culture, of these biases, of expectations. Uh, actually, the first section, or I think it's, is it the first section or the first chapter of the book is on capitalism, which I thought was interesting. Uh, yeah, it's actually the whole first part is capitalism. Um, but it's it does give this sense that the ways we value people is going to have an impact. So with capitalism being one of the main lenses that so much is viewed in the Western world, if someone's productive, they are, uh, you know, considered healthy. 
if they are productive in the economic sense, especially that's that's the key. Even I, you know, as I'm saying that, it makes me think of a term like functioning alcoholic. And usually, a functioning alcoholic or a functioning addict is someone who has an addiction, which is causing some kinds of distress in their life, interpersonally, physically, and just how they're doing and their well-being. But if they're able to go to work every day, we consider them quote-unquote functioning. And so that could be like a defining and redeeming characteristic and feature. But if you have some issue at your job, now all of a sudden you're not a functioning addict. And it's not that we shouldn't be concerned with someone who has an addiction and loses their job, but that we shouldn't think they're okay just because they are still working. And there's definitely a different type of stigma that is attached to someone who is still productive in the economic sense versus someone who is not. And what considers uh, what we consider an illness, it could be greatly affected by things like that and how we, we view people. Um, he does talk about the movements towards being more acceptant of people, for example, who are neurodivergent versus neurotypical. And often neurodivergent is used for individuals, for example, on the autism spectrum, that um, not just looking at it as some kind of disability, but there's actually ways of thinking that individuals with autism tend to express an experience that can be quite helpful for noticing patterns, paying attention to details in ways that someone who is more neurotypical actually can't do or won't do as well or as quickly. And so there was a whole chapter or big parts of, uh, of that chapter in the book later on that describe and, and show examples of companies and corporations who are actually embracing this. And it's not just in a way of, oh, it's nice that they're helping People, it's again has an economic and capitalistic lens to it that they're actually making good employees for them. So they're not just doing it as some kind of social service, they're actually helping the company. But it does also, I think, um, make us look at the perspective of how we're valuing people, how we're judging people, and recognizing that we are missing a lot of human value and human potential when we consider normal is only a certain thing or is a narrow band of the human experience of what different people go through. And going back to this concept of how mental illnesses and what people experience can vary depending on the cultural context and, and the different things that are going on, even something like PTSD. So that was a big chunk of the book also related to wars because a lot of the advent of mental illnesses and the classifications started with the military. It was in some ways military was one of the biggest driving forces of mental health um, development or mental illnesses also being developed for things like screening and then also dealing with the consequences of war. So we see things like PTSD coming up with different names throughout history. So there was shell shock after World War One, uh, which had its own set of symptoms. We see things like even something called Gulf War Syndrome, which was from the first Gulf War in the 90s that had its own set of symptoms. And then PTSD in these longer um, wars of Iraq and Afghanistan have also given new types of exposure. And you'll actually see that there's going to be some overlap, but there isn't just one type of symptom profile that we see in all of these disorders in history and in different countries. You might go to a different country where they don't 
necessarily have certain symptoms like flashbacks when it comes to PTSD or even in the earlier versions of it in, in the United States or the Western world, there wasn't always flashbacks. So it could be a reminder that there are parts of being human that seem to be very real and very uh, part of our experience, but there's also so much of it that gets impacted by the way culture looks at and judges certain things. And the way we stigmatize certain mental illnesses is very sad. So when we call someone crazy or a lunatic, there's a history to that as well. But for example, individuals who experience psychosis, who have hallucinations and delusions, they can still be very strongly stigmatized as crazy, as lunatics, as so different from us. What I think is really fascinating for me is as I've learned more in these recent years about the um, advancements in neuroscience and in understanding the brain, we see that because the brain is less a thinking and purely observing machine and much more of a predicting machine that we are all essentially hallucinating all of the time, which sounds a little bit crazy itself, I guess pun intended, but um, that is essentially what's happening when we're perceiving and experiencing the world. It's not just this world out there that I'm taking in via my senses. There's much more that my brain is predicting about what's out there and what it's going to experience that is um, affecting significantly what happens. So to think that there are some people that hallucinate and then some that don't, we see that this line is much more blurry and on a spectrum when we consider that it's what most of us might assume is out there versus some might not see, hear, or experience that. But it's not this black and white demarcation. And he does mention that in the most recent um, you know, volume of the DSM, which has the, uh, the disorders and the symptoms listed for them, the most recent one actually puts a lot more of the illnesses on a spectrum, which I think is a good movement. So it's not just schizophrenia, it's a schizophrenia spectrum. And something like depression, it's on a, you know, we can think of it more as a spectrum. And even with depression, there's so many different experiences that we probably label as just depression. Um, but it could be good to recognize that most experiences are not just a black and white cutoff, that now you have this and now you're labeled as that. But it's actually much more of a spectrum that people can experience different things in different ways and, and you know, it affects them in different ways. So that was interesting to see the history of that in different diseases. Um, he you know focuses on using the word mental illness, which I think is good, uh, that have evolved over time based on how society has evolved. Or even if we look at something like I mentioned homosexuality, for me that's an interesting one because of just when you, now that I'm approaching being 40 years old next year, um, I've had the time to see how things change in my own lifetime, not just, well, historically, we can see how 200 years ago people thought about this thing, seeing that just in my own lifetime, certain ways of thinking about things like gay marriage, for example, when I was a young child, I remember it was very, very controversial. Most people did not agree with gay marriage and it was just bad. And it just seemed so wrong to most people. Like it was just obviously wrong. Uh, and then now some people still do, but many, many more people think it's totally fine and even think, well, what's the big deal? It's just two people that love each other and want to commit to each other for life. 
Why should we make a distinction between if it's male, female, male, male, or whatever it is if two adults want to commit to each other? That should be okay. But you really have to think about that closely and think, okay, well, what has changed? And the only thing has changed is the historical, cultural um, concept and constructs that affect how we view things. Nothing has changed about two people deciding to commit to each other that are either male or female or whatever their sex or gender may be. The only thing that changes how we view that thing. And so our feelings are really wonderful things that I am a big fan of promoting us being more in touch with them and seeing them as something valuable. But we also have to be aware that our feelings are a big part of what impacts how we think about things, really how we feel about things, but we might think it's purely thinking. So we think, well, no, I'm pro-homosexuality or pro-gay marriage or anti-gay marriage purely from logical reasons. But you have to be aware that you can't think about these things in purely logical ways, or it's almost impossible and you have to have that intellectual humility that as much as I'm trying to be objective, I'm going to be affected by things that are not actually about the logical decision of good, bad, right, wrong, how things should be that I'm not even aware of, or I can try to become more aware of, and that might change it, but I I might not become aware or won't be able to become aware of it all. So we see that this is homosexuality, good, bad, normal, abnormal, has changed so much throughout history, not because it itself has changed, but society's view of it has changed. And unfortunately, people have often used the experiences of individuals who are stigmatized as evidence of that thing being bad. So I've heard people say, well, you know, if you poll individuals who are homosexual, you'll find more mental health issues. And so that shows that being homosexual is something bad or wrong or something wrong with these people. Not realizing that if you stigmatize, if you persecute, if you bully and uh, treat people as second class citizens, they're of course going to experience mental health issues related to that. How could they not? So what they're expressing is not a badness about, let's say in this case that I'm describing, being homosexual. It's a badness of how society is treating some people. And so if we don't recognize that a lot of mental illnesses, mental pains that people experience, there's some that's part of being human we're all going to experience, but so much of what people go through is based on the cultural political, societal, economic, uh, historical factors that influence what any individual goes through. I can imagine a time in the future, several hundred years, where race won't be a have an impact on how people experience life. It still is in a country like the United States. I know people don't like talking about it so much or they feel like we talk about it too much, but there's definitely a reality of that. It's not because being a certain race is better or worse than another one. It's the experience of someone is affected by how they are treated by society. So then when we look at someone who has a certain, whether it's uh, what we call a mental illness or even we term it an illness or has a certain experience, let's say is um, not heterosexual or a certain race, we have to always be aware that the judgments you're going to have about them is going to be clearly impacted by the world that you live in that you can't even realize. It's like you have glasses on, but you don't realize you have glasses on. So you see everything a certain color, but you think, no, this is how it looks 
and it actually fits well into what I was saying before about expectations and the expecting and predicting brain, but you're not going to be aware of those things. So this is what I mean when I say we have to be vigilant because you're not going to be aware of what you're missing or you're not going to be aware of the biases that affect the ways that we're judging things. And so as a result, the way we judge individuals with mental illness, the way we judge individuals who seek out mental health care and treatment is going to be significantly impacted by things that we aren't even aware will impact that decision. So uh, I very much enjoyed this book really did a deep dive into the history of mental illness and its development and how we can be obsessed with things like normality and what it means to be normal, but how that's really a mistake and that nobody's normal. I just love that title. Um, I think, uh, you know, definitely <laughs> talk about biases. I'm sure that had a bias on how much I liked the book to begin with, but really I do think uh, I could try to be closer to objective and say it is a good book for anyone, not just a mental health professional, but anyone to read to try to understand these concepts of uh, mental illness, stigma, and how they've come about throughout history and giving you some perspective of what might be going on now. So again, that was Nobody's Normal by Roy Richard Grinker. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I was discussing the book today, Nobody's Normal by Roy Richard Grinker. And I was talking about how what we consider normal is so much impacted by cultural, historical, political, economic, and all sorts of factors rather than just something about what's healthy, what's unhealthy, what's good, what's bad, what's normal, and what's abnormal. And so I was saying we need to be mindful of that. And so in the book, he also discusses treatment in, in different forms uh, or different ways throughout the book. And I actually thought we can apply the same principle in some ways to the concept of what is healthy and unhealthy or what's a good treatment and a bad treatment, because that also is going to be impacted by a whole bunch of factors that aren't just about how good the treatment is. Is it helpful or unhelpful, uh, efficacious or not, have bad side effects or good side effects? So much of that is going to be impacted by other factors other than that. So if we look historically, sometimes we can laugh at certain treatments that were done medically or psychologically, things like um, leeches and bloodletting and things of that nature. We can also see how they did and still actually some places do treat the mentally ill barbarically, chaining them up, um, beating them, doing different things to do what they thought was helpful or they were just so dehumanized that people didn't care much what they did to them. And so we can think, oh, you know, how crazy and stupid were people back then. But what we can also do is, in a way, well, not really the opposite of that, but similar when it comes to treatment, of looking at certain treatments that actually might be helpful, but because of different stigmas that are attached to them, different historical factors, different emotional factors, and even maybe cultural, artistic type factors, which I'll mention one specifically, we can judge those treatments as bad and unhealthy and wrong and things that shouldn't be used. And so one of those that he discusses in the book is electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. Sometimes it's called electric shock therapy, which gives it an even worse name. But there are other treatments like that. Another class of things that I'm thinking of here is using psychedelics in the treatment 
of mental health illnesses that have been given a very bad name and image. And because of that, people see them in a very negative light and not just people, even scientists and clinicians as well. And so it's affected the research being done on certain types of treatments and then also um, the prescription or people using and utilizing these treatments. So electroconvulsive therapy, and actually before I, I get into that, he also dis- talks about the history of lobotomies, which is a horrible thing. So it's, of course, not saying that every treatment that's been done was good and anything that got a bad reputation shouldn't have. Lobotomies were horrible and they were done originally using an ice pick. And you get the sense that this doctor, I think his name was Dr. Freeman, Um, was just this very pompous, arrogant man who really liked being uh, someone who came up with a new treatment more than actually seeing if this treatment was good and helpful and wasn't causing much more harm uh, than good. So there are lots of horrible treatments and psychology as a field and psychiatry has done a lot of horrible things to people, I'm sure continues to in ways we might not be aware of, but the history is quite clear on that in some of these incidences. Uh, But if we look at electroconvulsive therapy, as I mentioned, culture and art, the reason why I said that was because a movie that had a huge negative impact and continues to is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Jack Nicholson was in that movie and it essentially primarily took place, I remember seeing it now years ago one time, maybe I should see it again to, to get a better sense of what was conveyed and displayed in that movie, that there was scenes of, first of all, showing how bad the mental hospitals were and how they were running, uh, they were run, but also electroconvulsive therapy, which was at times used as a punishment. From what I remember, that movie was done as a punishment as well. Um, was just done in a very, what looked like a barbaric way. And it actually wasn't done as well before, and people could break bones or have certain injuries from the the, the shocks and the essentially the seizures that are caused by these electroconvulsions or the electric sh- uh, uh, currents that are passed into the brain or from the scalp. Um, so it was worse before, but it's not like that before. But unfortunately, people... Here, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, especially when people say shock therapy, and they think of this barbaric, horrible thing, uh, and that's something that shouldn't be used, and if you wouldn't want to have people know that you did it, but you don't even think of it as, as a good option, which is very unfortunate because it actually can be quite helpful. Some people who have treatment-resistant depression, who are catatonic, who are not responding to medication and might even be suicidal, can actually have significant benefits from electroconvulsive therapy. I actually remember a father a couple months ago called, and I was he had a son who was, I think, a teenage son who had pretty severe depression, and it seemed like not nothing was helping. Mostly they tried medications and therapy, or the, the primary medications. And so I, I was suggesting to him to look into some of these what's considered alternative treatments, um, but really they shouldn't be so alternative. They're just not the ones that are primarily used and have sometimes a bad image because of these things that I'm talking about. So it's very unfortunate, but ECT can be very helpful for people dealing with depression and the side effects because of the advents and how to uh, do it in a way that the shock can be less and also using things like muscle relaxants and anesthesia to prevent some of the side effects and the harms that might have been done in earlier iterations of electroconvulsive therapy, the side effects can be quite minimal. 
Some people experience memory loss, mostly temporary, but some might even uh, experience some more permanent memory loss. doesn't mean of everything, but of certain things um, they might forget. So that's not insignificant. But when we're talking about life and death, someone who can be so depressed that they might be suicidal, it could be worth it. As always, we have to to bend, uh, balance the, the pros and the cons. So to me, that's a very interesting one. Even for me as a clinician, I can feel a reluctance. And this goes back to what I was saying in the previous segment where we think we're thinking rationally only and logically. We're not aware of the impact of emotion, but it's this sense of electroconvulsive therapy, shock, this barbaric thing, recommending that to a client would seem... Uh, mean or inhumane or maybe even insulting that I'm saying you need something like that or I want you to go through that. So I can feel that I have some of that stigma and that judgment about it as well. And I'm trying to be more and more open-minded about it. And something they mentioned, he mentioned in the book, it's hard to find places that do ECT because I don't know someone and I haven't made a referral specifically myself. And I think a lot of clinicians that I know would probably feel the same way because it's not something that is that openly discussed. And there are some new, um, we can call them variations or advancements. I don't know if it's exactly considered the same thing, but TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and there's different versions of that that have different names and slightly different variations on that. That's also showing some significant effectiveness when it comes to treating depression and other uh, mental illnesses. And so I hope people will be aware of that as well, that there's electroconvulsive therapy, but also some variations. TMS is getting um, a lot more attention and there's research showing that it can be helpful. And I also mentioned the psychedelics. So uh, he mentioned esketamine, um, which is a nasal spray. Uh, I was able to collaborate with um, a ketamine clinic before the pandemic. Um, and so it could be used uh, as a drug for treatment-resistant depression and severe anxiety that could be very helpful. And again, it could act very quickly. Antidepressant medications, which first of all, uh, don't work for the majority of people. They can be very, very helpful. So it's not to say no one should be taking them. They can help a lot of people. But we want to be aware of these other alternatives and not just think, well, antidepressant medications are the only way. Uh, something like ketamine and related drugs like that can also have uh, a good impact. And a big difference is antidepressants tend to take something like four to six weeks to really have a positive impact. Whereas ketamine can act almost instantly in certain ways. Um, same thing with ECT. It can be a much faster uh, benefit that the patient will um, experience. And that's huge in general to reduce suffering. But when we're talking about people who might be suicidal, it can literally be a matter of life and death. So ketamine. But for me, I was resistant to that too, along with other psychedelics. Because when you hear LSD and psilocybin and um, ketamine and ecstasy for the treatment of PTSD, our first reaction, and really they won't say ecstasy, it's MDMA, the active drug or ingredient in the party drug ecstasy, the initial reaction is something quite negative. And now when it comes to psychedelics, you can really get a good um, history of this in Michael Pollan's book, How, Will you Cha How to Change Your Mind, where he goes into the history of how psychedelics became so stigmatized and 
became so much viewed as these horrible things that are going to ruin people's lives and fry your brain and cause a whole bunch, a whole bunch of horrible things um, that then made it go basically into the closet as far as being researched for decades because it was seen as this horrible thing. And I have that bias too still that I'm still trying to overcome to being open to it. I'm much more open to it. But we unfortunately closed off so many things. So again, it's not, I would say, well, it's different. I don't want to compare it. When we stigmatize certain people, that's horrible. The reason why I'm saying it's not that different because we're stigmatizing uh, treatment substances that might literally save lives or reduce suffering significantly. So we want to be open to that and try to be open-minded about that. Something like alcohol which is very easy to access for anyone over 21 or really anyone, but let's say in the United States, anyone over 21, it probably is much more harmful than psychedelics in most ways. Now, I'm not in any way um, recommending anyone take psychedelics on their own or really encouraging it. That's still a very tricky thing of how you can get treatment using it. And I would only recommend that if you ever were going to explore something like that, if it's legal where you are to do it in a setting where you are with professionals because it's not just about the substance there's the significance of set and setting where the mindset you're in and the place you do it and they can guide you through therapy and other things as well so this is not an endorsement just for psychedelics across the board but especially for us to be open to looking at um, different kinds of treatments and be aware that the biases we have here as well that because of things that might be totally unrelated to the efficacy of the actual treatment of the substance just because of economic, historical, different factors, we might judge a certain treatment as wrong and bad and horrible and something that shouldn't be used when really we might be using something much worse either for treatment or just in our everyday lives. And so the part he had about ECT in this book I thought was quite important. I thought it aligns with this theme of things that can have a stigma. People can have a stigma, but also things and treatments and other things can have a stigma as well. So just something to think about being open-minded. We sometimes think of them as quote-unquote alternative treatments, but that alternative title sometimes can be less about the fact that it really is not uh, is alternative, but more about some historical, economic, and other factors that have made it classified in that way. So just something to be mindful of. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fahir Delakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.